Well, I ask, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 17. And as always, you'll need to have the text in front of you for the entirety of the sermon. Now, we recently concluded 1 Timothy, and we will be going on, hopefully this coming Lord's Day, with the pastoral epistles. But uh, this morning, this historical narrative, 1 Samuel 17... I would like to begin reading verses 50 through 54. Let's briefly pray. Our Father, before reading this word, we would remind ourselves that we are hearing the word of God, that even though you used human authors, you are its ultimate author, and you have kept this book without error in the whole and in the part. And you have revealed yourself to us in this passage of Scripture, just as you have in the entirety of your word. Help us to know that what it means to be followers of the Lamb is that we willingly submit to the teaching of your word and that we find Christ on every page of Scripture. Help us now as we come to this text that your people will be built up in the faith and that those who know you not may be drawn by the powerful working of your spirit to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning with verse 50. This is the word of God. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his army, his armor, in his tent. People of God, the Lord preserves his people, the Lord defends his people, and the Lord conquers his people's enemies. David's battle with Goliath happened a long time ago, roughly around 1000 BC, and I find that Christians have a hard time knowing what to do with historical narratives such as this one. The typical approach is to say something like this, David was a brave young man and he stood against all odds, and the Lord tells us that we also must be brave and to stand against all odds. But this is exactly how not to rightly interpret the text. To do that would be to scratch the date. That is, to fail to understand that this is an event of redemption at a particular point in the history of God's people, and we need to understand that in order to properly apply it to our lives. The text is not given to us to tell us to be brave. The text is given to teach us about God's redemption. So our task is to understand this event as God's word spoken to the church in her Old Testament setting and then to pass on its truth to God's people here today, this morning. And this can be done when we understand that there is one people of God throughout all the ages. 
that the same Lord who was with his people then is with his people now, that the setting for living for the Lord is vastly different now than then, but God's purpose for his people is one and the same. And so when you come to Old Testament narratives like this, you see Christ redeeming his people, striding through the pages of the Old Testament, leading us on to Bethlehem and to the cross and to the empty tomb. The significance of that task relates to our place in redemptive history. In the last days, perilous times will come. We are opposed by the evil one. The kingdom of the devil is opposed to the kingdom of God. The grace of God in Christ is hated. The truth of the Bible is denied. Christians are persecuted the world over. In our own country, we are called to bear witness in a culture that increasingly is hostile to Christ and even in the presence of an apostate church. We no less than God's people of old are in a battle. Therefore, it is a great blessing to see the emphases of this text. And what are these emphases? The Lord preserves his people, the Lord defends his people, the Lord conquers his people's enemies. Now we have here this young shepherd boy whose name is David. Who was he? Let's remember that he was the youngest of eight sons of Jesse the Bethlehemite. He was of the tribe of Judah. The genealogy of Ruth chapter 4 traces his ancestry all the way back to Genesis to Perez, Judah's son by Tamar, and Ruth was David's great-grandmother. He was anointed to be king, and for our purposes, it is especially noteworthy that Samuel the prophet was instructed by the Lord to anoint David king, rejecting all of the other sons of Jesse. Samuel anointed young David in the presence of his family. Now, when he did that, it was long before the coronation. Saul would continue to reign for another decade. Had Saul made a mistake? No, he had not. This was the Lord's doing, strange to David, no doubt, but he must learn to walk by faith and not by sight, just as you and I, as believers, must today. As king, David points beyond himself. His office points to his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So David's actions have significance insofar as they point to or fail to point to that greater king, that greater son, that greater David who was to come. Now with that in mind, let us go to this ancient text and see what happened, what God did for his people, how he redeemed then and how he redeems now. The Lord will bring David to national prominence in the Valley of Elah as we see in the opening words of this chapter. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah in Iphis Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Now it's in this setting that Goliath challenges God's people. The Philistine army crossed the Israelite frontier in the valley of Elah and engaged Israel in battle. You noticed in verse 1, Sukkot, which belongs to Judah. The Philistines have actually crossed into the borders of Israel. The Philistine champions stepped forth and mocked the armies of the living God. The world mocks the church today. This hasn't changed, has it? Goliath struck terror in the hearts of the soldiers of Israel. Well, no wonder he was over nine feet tall. Some scholars think perhaps 11 feet tall, depending upon how you read it. 
He wore a coat of mail that was 126 pounds. He carried a spear that was like a weaver's beam with a bronze point of about 15 pounds, the text teaches us. Twice a day, twice a day for 40 days, he taunted Israel. And here is his taunt beginning in verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, not Saul, not Jonathan, not Abner, no one stepped forward to do battle with this giant man, Goliath. The mention of 40 days, taunting for 40 days, intentionally drawn out in the text, Well, the 40 days might have brought something else to mind. It might have brought to mind to the Israelites 40 years of wilderness wandering in their sin and rebellion. To put it plainly, the Israelites might have cowered not only because Saul was a big guy, but because they remembered that their their sins once had kept them in the wilderness, and their sins even now paralyze them from doing battle. The point, Israel needs a savior. Israel needs a redeemer. Well, will Israel perish? Will they become the slaves of the Philistines? Will God's enemies prevail? Do not God's people, do not we sometimes look around and think that things seem hopeless for the church today? Remember, if Israel fails, our redemption fails. No Israel, no Christ. No Christ, no salvation. But no, the Lord's purposes for his people will not fail because God preserves his people. God then sends his own champion. David's father, Jesse, sent David with food for his three sons who were already in the battle line. And ephah, parched grain, ten loaves also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. This father, undoubtedly deeply concerned to know if his sons are safe in the battle. David brought the food. Jesse did not realize that God was behind the errand. He rose early and left the sheep and did as his father told him, and David arrived, as we read in verse 20. The host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And then we read in verses 22 and 23. And Israel and the Philistines drew up battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers and talked with them. Behold, the champion... The Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. We read in verse 24. And then in verse 25, the men of Israel said, 
Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Well, David, the shepherd boy, hears this, and he is taken by it. He wants confirmation of it, and he begins to speak to the other soldiers. Now tell me again, what will the king do for the one who fights and who kills this giant Goliath? David's brother Eliab rebukes him. He says to him, essentially, you're here just for the battle. We know you. You just want to see what's going on. Little brother, you're in the way. Go home. You're not wanted here. But David's enthusiasm was catching, and his words were heard, and this was reported to Saul the king. What did David say? Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul looks at David. Saul looks at David and he says, you you can't do this, for you are a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David begs to differ, and he speaks words that glorify God, beginning in verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear... And took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now remember, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Saul is convinced, and he attempts to give David his own armor so that he can go fight this giant. It must have been rather comical. Uh, The helmet of bronze, the coat of mail, the sword of Saul strapped over his armor. And David says, I cannot go with these, for I've not tested them. So David took them off. And the text tells us he took his staff in his hand, and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. What a contrast. David, the little shepherd boy, and this uncircumcised giant of a Philistine standing before him. Now, someone has rightly said that David understood that this was a theological problem, (laughs) and he was right. Did you see how I put it in verse 36? Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine, that is to say he is not a part of the people of God, shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. That's the issue here. The glory of God. He is defying the armies of the living God. Despite the fact that Goliath was a living tank, what had God promised to his people? Uh, Will this be the end of the promises of God? Will the people of God live on? Will the Lord bring no redemption? Had not God shown himself faithful to Israel? Had not God shown himself faithful to David with lion and bear and out in the elements? Daily problems. Daily problems are always theological issues. The great ones and the small ones. I wish we would see that. But do you not see that whatever problem we face in this life is an issue of how the Lord redeems, keeps, and fulfills His promises to be received by faith by His people? God delivers His people. 
That's his promise. And so we move on to see a great victory. David is there. His shepherd staff, his sling, the five smooth stones from the brook. Another shepherd of Israel would later come and do battle and give his life for the sheep. But on this day we read, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. So this giant of a man comes undoubtedly. Undoubtedly the sun is is covered by the, the great mass of this man. What does Goliath do? Well, he taunts David, and in taunting David, he taunts Israel. In taunting Israel, he attempts to taunt God. And so we read in verse 42 this taunt. Let's listen in. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance, And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you've come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But David David speaks for God. Let's read on. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And then in verses 48 and 49, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and Sling, he slung it. You see, David, there's this giant. Here's this little shepherd. He slung the rock and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. One shot of a stone cut the giant down. The stone penetrated the one vulnerable part of his armor, but David had no sword, and so he ran, and he stood over Goliath, taking Goliath's sword, and he drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. So here's Goliath, who had defied the armies of the living God, who said that he would destroy David so that the birds of the air would eat his flesh. Here's the uncircumcised Philistine, this pagan who worshiped false gods. He's dead just as his gods are dead. Reminds us of Dagon way back in the fifth chapter of this very book. The Philistines had captured the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They took the ark and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So what did they do? They set Dagon back up in the temple. 
When they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left. Now that was this Philistine's God. And now like Dagon, there lies Goliath with his head cut off. God sovereign, God in control, David could not do this. The Lord was with David to do this. The Lord was with his anointed king to do this because God delivers his people. And after this great triumph, there is the triumph for the entire nation. There David stands over this dead giant, this huge sword in his hand with which he had cut off the head, and he's holding the dripping, the bloody head of this giant in his hands. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And in verse 52, we read, the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his army in his tent. Just as David said, the carcasses of the Philistine soldiers were given to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Why? Because there is a God in Israel. He covenanted to care for his people, and he's destroying his and their enemies. You know, this is an exciting story. I hope that when you read the Bible, you read these passages. Aren't you glad that God has given us a book that's full of dramatic interest? Uh, I love the epistles, but I'm also thankful for gospel. I love the gospels, but I'm also thankful for poetry. Uh, I love the poetry, but I'm also thankful for the historical narratives. God has given us a book that is not the same It's unified, it's one, it's true, it's from God, but it's filled with all of these beautiful forms of literature recording in this instance an historical happening of redemption in ancient Israel. Now, what do you do with it? If anyone should take heart that a little guy can be brave in the midst of uh, great odds, perhaps it should be me. I remember when I was a boy that uh, my six-foot-two brother, I used to take up for him and got in many a scrap. Could I go to this text and say, hey, this is where I find my encouragement to do battle for my brother? You know that's not how to use the text. And yet, how often in our Sunday schools and even in preaching do you hear that kind of moralism? What do we do with it? How is it for you? Well, there is much distance in time and place and culture between 1 Samuel 17 and today. But let me remind you, there is one triune, true, and living God, one people of God throughout the ages, one covenant of grace, one plan of redemption, one Savior from sin for David, for the ancient Israelites, and for us. And this is how we bridge from then and there to here and now. And so I want to underscore once again 
these three truths. The Lord preserves his people. Who is David? Take the time later and go to Matthew, the first chapter, and read the genealogy of Jesus that begins and concludes with the emphasis upon the reality that Jesus is of the house and lineage of David. David was the ancestor of Christ. When David went against Goliath, had he failed, what would this have meant? None of God's promises fulfilled. No kingdom of God set up. No David, no Christ. No Christ, none of us saved from our sins. That's what was at stake in the valley of Elah on that great day long ago, though they could not have known it. But of course, we serve a sovereign God who rules and reigns over history. The Lord has promised to preserve his people. There will always be a people of God in the midst of this taunting world. David could not fail because God saw to that. And Christ would be born in Bethlehem and would go to the cross and would rise from the dead. Praise God, the Lord keeps his promises, preserves his church despite the opposition of the world. The Lord preserves his people. But also, the Lord defends his people. He is the divine warrior of his people. David fights, but the battle is the Lord's, verse 47. It is the Lord fighting there long ago in the valley of Elah. It is the Lord that directed the stone so that it hit the giant in just the place that would bring him down. It is the Lord fighting there. Our battle looks much different than this one. We do not fight with swords and spears, nor with five smooth stones from the brook. But behind this battle so long ago was the evil one. And Paul tells us, as we heard this morning, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in that, our battle is won. It is the same. Even though there's historical difference, behind it all is the evil one. So we must take up the whole armor. That armor is the armor of God himself, the armor that God gives. The Lord has promised to be with us in the battle. Indeed, to fight for us, he will defend his people, and the victory is sure. The Lord preserves his people. The Lord defends his people. But also, the Lord conquers his people's enemies. Has he not? Will he not? Did he not conquer Goliath through the anointed king? Did he not slay our sin on the cross and resurrection through David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior? Has he not promised to rule and defend us and conquer all his and our enemies? And so this text comes to the people of God tried, persecuted, struggling, doing battle, this text comes to the people of God this morning as pure encouragement. The Lord preserves his people, defends his people, and conquers for his people. And so we see, even now, 
the Savior who is ascended on high, is making all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. His gospel is conquering hearts even now. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is bringing them down. And men and women and children are coming under the happy sway of this infinitely benevolent sovereign. But what of those who rebel? What of those who rebel? Who will have nothing of him and nothing of his word and nothing of his truth. Every knee shall bow, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What awaits those who reject him? Turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Let's read a lengthy passage. It speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus as the warrior for his people. Revelation 19, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one else knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And yet in many a pulpit this morning, it's Jesus meek and mild, and an effeminate Jesus who couldn't come and do battle with a flea. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's the sovereign Lord. He's the King of kings. He will ride on a white horse. A sword will come from his mouth, and he will devour his enemies. Don't you see why the cross? We are no more deserving of salvation than another, and we would be devoured on that day were it not for his own shed blood when he did battle with the prince of the power of the air, 
and won through his cross and resurrection the salvation of his people as our greater than David, our anointed king. And he will come again and receive us unto himself, that where he is, there we may be also. Our catechism asks, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? And it answers, Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. The encouragement that we, the people of God, today can take from this ancient, ancient text. In our time, in our place, in our circumstances, is that this battle in which we continue to be engaged as the militant church, that this battle with temptation and sin in our own lives, that this battle against those who would oppose the truth, that this battle to extend the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel, that this battle in which we are engaged, this battle, this battle is the Lord's. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.